Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling day glow, which is obviously a word that you associate with me regularly, isn't it? Because I am mm-hmm. quite day glow. There. there he goes. Oh, I am. Oh, day glow. And um, the reason I'm feeling day glow is because today's guest... <laughs> Um, has stopped me in my tracks numerous times, including in an airport at Dallas-Fort Worth, because there is an amazing permanent installation, um, at least I think it's permanent, in the airport. And um, I did the art fair there numerous, numerous, numerous times back in the day. And also I would go for like, uh, when I was working with Catherine Bernhardt and we did a show at Fort Worth Museum and all of these different things. And every time I went, his artwork made my trip more enjoyable. And literally the first time I saw it, I stopped in my tracks didn't actually know his work that well and was like what is that like I loved it and it had all these incredible colors but also different kind of junctions and shapes and abstractions which were familiar to me from life like you know if you think about scientific kind of diagrams or even just like maps or all kinds of different references and I remember being really struck by it and then I was with Carl Friedman at the time and Carl was like well that's obviously Peter Halley and um, this is probably back in about 2012 and I was wasn't that familiar with with his work, even though he's been making work for more than like 40 years now, past four, four decades plus. So I then went to an art fair in Brussels and saw the work in person as a painting and just became completely obsessed. And there was an exhibition at Modern Art in London with Stuart Shave called mm-hmm. Paintings from the 1980s quite a few years ago now. And I went to see that show and it was a bit like doing that kind of pilgrimage to an art- artist that you've discovered and you really want to see loads of work. And it was one of my favourite shows at Stuart's Gallery. It was just so, so extraordinary. The thing I love most about his work before we introduce him is the kind of duality between positive energy, kind of joyous celebratory forces, contrasted with a kind of sincerity and a seriousness. It's kind of like effervescence plus permanence, these two kind of different forces which which are joined in the work. And I just find that duality so invigorating and exciting. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art, Peter Peter Halley. Hi, Peter. Hello, gentlemen. How are you doing? That was a wonderful introduction. You've got an incredibly velvety voice, Peter. <laughs> well, hearing you make the introduction is thrilling. If I recall, you've been filming and working nonstop over the last few months. 
me, yes. I, I'm currently in Fire Island on a TV show. I've been in New York City since June. Uh, Rob's crazy busy with the gallery. They've just released a new suite of prints for Greenpeace, incredible artists, and he's just opened a solo show for an artist called John Key, who he represents. So it's it's all busy times. It feels uh, a special time, really, for what's going on creatively. And so it feels good to be connecting to you right now because we've been wanting to do this for a while, Peter. <laughs> for ages. Yes, we've talked about it a lot. Is this your first time working in the States? For me, uh, no. I've worked here multiple times. Sometimes I really enjoy it. Other times I'm desperate <laughs> to get home. This time I'm really enjoying it. Absolutely. I feel like New York is alive. I feel like the art scene is really uh, incredibly vibrant and a lot going on. There's just had the Armory Art Fair and the Independent 20th Century Art Fair, which I absolutely loved. There feels like it's a real... It's back. New York feels like it's back. And it feels like the art is popping. And I noticed you collect uh, Wolfgang Tillmans. I do. I love He's I an old friend of mine. Is he? Did you, yes. Uh, when I published uh, Index Magazine in the 90s, he did a lot of portraits for us. Wow. And in fact, he did the covers for the first year. Yeah, I'm, I'm obsessed. I'm an obsessive fan of Wolfgang Tillmans, and the show at MoMA is beyond. You have been. Yeah. It is it's terrific. Mm. It's terrific. We um we interviewed Wolfgang on Talk Art during the pandemic, and I think it's still to this day one of our kind of highlights of the whole of the show. It was deeply personal, very introspective, and just really inspiring. I adore him. So you mentioned Index Magazine. So for those who don't know that, that was a publication that you did with Bob Nickus, and that was back in the mid-90s, wasn't it? From 96 to 2005. And what led to you beginning that as a project? Think boredom. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, New York was New York was kind of dreary in the mid '90s. The art world had fallen apart. Probably younger people don't know about this, but there was a, not just a recession in the art world; it was a real crash. Mm. And starting around '91, no one was interested. No one was buying anything. It was it, it was a depressing time for in the arts. And um, coming out of that period. And New York being a bit dreary, Bob and I got the idea to do, do a magazine that was solely interviews. Uh, so uh, we interviewed terrific people over the years. Terrific people did interviews for us. And um, I think Wolfgang did a couple interviews. I got to interview Isabella Rossellini, who mm-hmm. I admire. Oh, and at the same time, the poet uh, Wayne Kostenbaum should get a Nobel Prize, but they haven't gotten to him yet. <laughs> and it, it was a very exciting time. In fact, the podcasts that you're doing over a long period of time as and doing them regularly, sort of the present day equivalent of that kind of magazine. I actually really remember Index. And I didn't you have an issue that had Björk in it, the Icelandic musician and artist? Yes. Yeah, because I swear I remember buying that in, in New York in the kind of late 90s or something yes and um uh the photo was by uh jürgen teller oh yeah of course because you had some incredible photographers the world of photography is so interesting because if a company has a lot of money and is doing an advertising campaign the photographers will charge a lot but if it's a little magazine where they get to do what they want to do there they'll practically do it for free Mm. So we had very talented people taking photos for us. 
So this was a series of interviews. Would this be any way influenced by Andy Warhol's interview magazine? Because I've I've read multiple uh, conversations where you have said that you model yourself after Andy Warhol, the way that he his constructions of culture. He's been a major influence on you as a working artist. He has. I mean, he's been an influence on so many people in so many different ways. But yeah, uh, we definitely were thinking about interview. And by that time, interview had become very celebrity oriented and kind of slick. And we wanted to get back to the original roots of, uh, of interview. You know, I, I have some very old copies of interview and it was so bad in the first few years, so amateurish, <laughs> so boring. And uh, it struck me that even back in the 90s, and it's certainly true today, the world, the cultural world has become more competitive and you can't really get away with doing anything <laughs> that bad. It's like opening a, a restaurant to sell shit food in New York. It just will not last. You have to <laughs> have a constant level. What What was it about... Andy Warhol, and also you—you you knew him. He's painted you. You have a work in your studio. I've seen, and yeah, I met him about six months before he died. I got to go to his studio uh, with uh, the art dealer Bruno Bischofberger, and uh, it was a great experience. Um, what, what what I thought about him is he had unusually sensitive antennae. He he seems so tuned to everything going on around him. And um, I didn't really want to have my portrait done because I thought it was a rather um, uh, cliched thing to do. But nevertheless, he took Polaroids that day and I wasn't really given a choice. I, the, someone said, sit down and he's going to take your photo. And of course, I'm glad I did. And uh, when I say he had... Um, very sensitive antennae. There's a good story because a month or two later, I went to a dinner party after the opening of uh, David Sally's show at the um, Whitney Museum. This is 1986. And it was at Mr. Chow's in New York, and it was a buffet. So you stood in line and you got your plate and then went and talked to people. So I've read all Andy Warhol's uh, little books, and one thing he says is only rich people can talk and eat at the same time. So I made it my policy always to eat before I went to one of these dinner parties. So I, I figured eating and talking was more than I could handle. <laughs> and so I was in the buffet line with a friend and walked through it, and the friend picked up a plate of food, and then I wandered away and then ended up at the back of the line with another friend and ended up going through the buffet line again. And after that, I uh, went over to where Warhol was sitting, talking to David Sally, and he said, I saw you go through the buffet line two, oh. two, two times. <laughs> and I mean, there were a hundred people there. I just could not believe it. And my only regret is that I didn't tell him that uh, I was following his advice. <laughs> That's hilarious. So this was in New York, and you, you mentioned just now in the 90s that New York went through a kind of dreary time for the art world, but the city itself 
has been an incredible component in your whole body of work in in your career in your personal life and your business life what when did you move to new york and what was it about this city that's kept you there even through these periods when it felt like there was no inspiration for you well i was born here <laughs> right so so uh new york is kind of, in some ways my natural habitat although i'm not a typical new yorker I've lived other places. I, I, I went away to boarding school and college, and then I lived in New Orleans for six years. And I decided to come back in 1980, partially from hearing new wave music like the Talking Heads and Blondie and um, Gang of Four and um, the other bands. It finally occurred to me that something was going on. Of course, Gang of Four wasn't from New York, but in the in in New York and the larger cultural world, and I think that's what propelled me back. And David Byrne, you were talking about Talking Heads. He was became your upstairs neighbor. Coincidentally, the loft I moved into, he was he lived upstairs, and I used to call him the Lonely Rock Star because there weren't people hanging around or anything. He just go in and out very quietly. But the first summer I lived there, uh, everybody had the windows open. And late at night, I, I would hear the, uh, what turned out to be, um, what, what do you call it, when you play the, the tapes of the session you've just done in the studio for remaining light, remain in light, uh, that incredible a- album uh, mm. that I think Brian Eno was involved with. So that was kind of thrilling. Wow. Wow. I, I mention it as being a huge component of your work because when people come to your work, if they've not seen your work before, there is this, you don't know if it's, a, you're seeing it from above or sideways, but it feels like there's this, this these microchips, there's technology, but there's also a grid system. And it makes me think of artists like Piet Mondrian, Boogie Woogie, which is when you look at the aerial view of New York City, the grid system is what is you're drawn to. You see Central Park and then you just see all the lines and the avenues. And when you look at your work, it absolutely corresponds to this grid system. And it's something that you've either celebrated or it's a critique of the trappings of being part of this cosmopolitan of New York. In a way, both. I, I mean, even though I grew up here, coming back here, I felt I was able to see it with new eyes. And in the early 80s, I was absolutely enthralled with the physicality of New York and the the, the, the spatiality of New York. You know, you go, you travel in a grid and you go up and down on elevators. It's a, it's a very kind of three-dimensional chess. Now, my, my paintings look like they're seen in, from above as in plan, but they are actually all seen from the side as uh, elevations, as they say in architecture. So I, I'm, I'm imagining them as, let's call them containers or blocks or um, whatever name you want to give them, seen from the side as if you're looking at a landscape or cityscape. There's no doubt that they're a kind of overall representation of New York. Even as a kid, you painted 
the geometric shape, right? It's true. I seem to be sort of uh, programmed by programmed to do so. I mean, who you are as an artist is partially a, a, a conscious decision, but other parts of it are just you know built into your biology. I mean, if you do sports, it's obvious some people can run very fast and <laughs> some people can't. And um, for some reason, thinking in terms of, uh, of uh, geometric form and color is something I've always done. At the time you started to exhibit and your work um, kind of gained attention, I guess, from the art world as as a as a place, um, a, a wide reaching place. Um, you were alongside a number of other artists and there's a kind of title for that group of artists, which was neo-conceptualist. And there's also been other terms like neo-geo and all these kind of different uh, terminologies. But um, did you feel quite aligned to those other artists? So if you think of people like Heim um, Steinbeck, who I adore, or like Jeff Koons or um, Stephen Perino, like there, there were so many different artists at that time, um, Sarah Charlesworth, and more. Um, what, was there a sense of like a community of artists all all on sort of a new discovery for making new? No, new there kinds really of was. Um, mm. All of a sudden, in about eighty three or eighty four, um, uh, several galleries opened in the East Village that were run by very young artists in their twenties, and uh, they began to show people of my generation, and. Gradually, one by one, I began to uh, meet all of the people you just mentioned. Heim, who I also admire enormously, is one of my oldest friends and, to me, a vastly underrated artist who should be much more well-known. And uh, Jeff and I began showing together at International Monument. That was the name of the gallery. I, I knew Stephen Perino quite well um, uh, in in those days, as well as Sarah Charlesworth. Uh, Meyer Weissman was a guy who more or less ran International Monument, and he was a close friend. And the other gal galleries were Nature Mort, run by somebody named Peter Nagy, who is a uh, very interesting person. I don't know if you've interviewed him, but it would be worthwhile. He went off to live in India, and uh, apparently he has the most prestigious gallery in uh, Delhi. He had a show of Salman Tour that I was lucky to acquire a painting from him a few years back. Interesting. And the last gallery was called um, Cash Newhouse. So you rose to prominence in the 1980s and we're now talking to you in 2022 and for people looking at your work to get a full survey it feels like you have been mining and exploring the same themes and the same imagery for all of these decades in the way that we can now see Joseph Albers in homage to the square and the variables and other artists that have done that but there's a very unique quality when you speak to an artist who has found their vision at an early point in their career and stayed with it for so many years. 
is there a part of you that ever feels like there will be a finite moment, the last painting of this series and something else will happen? Or do you feel like this is uh, endless for you? Well, you know, I do all these installations and uh, they, they bring in a lot of other components. A, lot, a big part of that is digital printing and there's all kinds of imagery in the installations as well as the fact that I'm building things in three dimensions. But, but let me tell you about how it came into being. Moving back to New York and thinking about how the city was structured and how contemporary life was structured, I began to feel that uh, geometry was not uh, ideal platonic form like it was for uh, Joseph Albers, but rather that uh, geometric abstraction was a reflection of this late, late industrial uh, burgeoning digital society we were living in. So I, when I put a square into a painting, I didn't call it a square anymore, but it was a cell. You were meant to feel that was a container. And the other squares had uh, bars on them, so they were jails. So the two characters in the paintings are the cells and the uh, and the prisons. Cells being purely covered with uh, this stucco material, Rolotex. They're quite thick, low relief. And the jails uh, have, have bars on them. They kind of look like diagrammatic cartoon jails. And then I got the idea, in a way that was a sort of existentialist moment for me. I've just come back to New York. I was living alone. It was a kind of lonely time. You know, I was sort of in the world of Samuel Beckett and and uh, that kind of gloom. But gradually, it almost feels like it was sitting around one evening. I, I turned on the lights, the telephone rang, the uh, 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 turn on the faucet for water. That I was connected in all these different ways by technology. To th th that's the nature of of uh, life in contemporary society, and so that's what I set out to make a diagram of how how in our prisons or cells we're connected by predetermined technological networks. And then when the uh, internet came about, it seemed <laughs> it seemed to have something to do with that too. And you called that kind of element um, like a conduit or like yeah. a, a, a channel, like a connecting kind of um, space somehow to yeah, bring I, things together and connect them. I, I use the word conduit. And if you think of two squares connected by a, a line that goes between them, that's a conduit. And that's a kind of diagrams, that's a kind of space I'm diagramming in my paintings. And for me as a spectator, like as a viewer, I've always found from that minute I first saw the work in the airport, that there is a conduit between the work and the viewer. And I feel like it's a very strong bond, like it's a kind of subconscious thing. And I, I think it's, it's fascinating. It's a push and pull, that, isn't it, that yeah. you have, that yeah, plays definitely. with the colour, with the form, but as an audience, you are you're drawn in, and then you're repelled, and then you're brought back in again. So it has this this natural kind of like a battery energy, like the positivity yeah, and the negativity. <laughs> well, well, Russell, both things that you said are very important to me. First, that they can the paintings are kind of attractive and repulsive at the same time. 
uh, some people are put off by the bright color, but even the texture of this Rolotex material uh, in the paintings is, is kind of awful. So but it's like an Artex ceiling. We when I remember yeah, being remind- a kid, and everybody, every house <laughs> yeah, in the eighties had this Artex ceiling. Sometimes you okay. go into houses now, and they've still got it, and it's just it's triggering. It's like, an, it's like an echo of the seventies. Yeah, you want to pick it off? It? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. When I started doing it, it was everywhere. And then, and then the second thing that you're mentioning, I, I also talk about is push pull, which is a term that comes from Hans Hoffman, but. The paint, even though this, the the uh, composition of the paintings are flat or the they're diagrams, but by using color you can make them push back and forth and sort of give them a a second kind of lively space. But this color is, as Rob said in the intro, he feels day glow. It's this fluoro. It's this glowing. Roberta Smith uh, has reviewed it and said that the colors come from somewhere beyond art. That you are you are feeding into the lineage of geometric abstraction, but yet by the color choices you're making, you're taking it somewhere completely unique to you. Well, also I'm saying geometric abstraction isn't abstract. That that the, the forms of my painting, and I would say in a Mondrian as well, they 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 are based on. Uh, uh, the forms of urban life or life in a high, uh, highly developed technological society. So, so many geometric artists claimed that their work had no reference in the world. And especially the minimalists who I grew up with uh, really made it a point that their work was entirely self-referential, had no, no, no connection with anything going on out there. And, uh, what made my work controversial at first wasn't so much that um, the color, but rather I was saying, well, abstract painting really isn't so abstract. It's, it's, a, it, it's influenced and tied to modern technological urban life. Have you noticed uh, through the ebbs and flows of your work of the last few decades, have you noticed an appreciation and a depreciation with technology advances, i.e. things like the iPhone appearing and the understanding of microchips more and technology and the fact that when you were making these works in the 80s, there was, you know, we just had a television potentially that was as kind of technologically advanced as we were. And now we have, you know, computers in our hands. How has your work kind of ebbed and flowed? Because I know that I, I came to it at the modern art show was when I first really realized your work and it felt like there was a reassessment of you, a rediscovery of you, but yet you were there. You've been here the whole time. <laughs> well, first, I mean, there are a couple, a couple ways to answer that question. First of all, when the World Wide web appeared in the nineties, all of a sudden the paintings got very flamboyant and there, there were conduits going everywhere. And I felt I was kind of reacting to this information explosion. Mm-hmm. And then um, going back to the 80s, a lot of people of my generation really didn't. Well, let me put it a different way. If I'm correct, Russell, you were born in 1980. 81, yeah. Uh, people of your generation feel that my paintings look <laughs> like much more like a painting should look than people of my generation. 
so, I guess so people who grew up in the digital eras look at it and say, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> that's mm. a painting. That's something that has to do with the world I live in. And that's been really gratifying. Mm. And then the third thing is my paintings look a lot better on an iPhone than they do in a art book <laughs> because the art book tones when you're printing them, uh, printing tones down the color, you don't get a real sense of the color, but the iPhone does a, makes them look even better than they, than they really are. <laughs> when you've had this con controversy, as you said, or when you've had people that, you know, you say our generation appreciate more and, but you've been making these works and you've continued to make them. What, what is your motivation? How have you, you know, the people that have been rude about your work to, to you, what keeps you going and staying focused to mine and mine and keep exploring this theme, which are with your very simple vocabulary. How do you stay true to that through all negative and positive feelings? Well, to, to be fair, my, uh, the most enthusiastic part of my audience is in Europe. Uh, so over the years I've had a very, uh, warm welcome and exhibiting in Europe uh, across the continent, practically, particularly in Italy, which is a nice place to have an art show. But you're getting at something more, rather more basic. Why do I stick with this very limited vocabulary of forms? There really are only three, three uh, elements, a prison, uh, a cell, and conduits connecting them. And um, the work is very diaristic. And when I'm composing the work or putting a painting together, it's how those three elements become arranged in the painting is very, is very subjective and very uh, intuitive for me. And what actually what really helped is uh, when uh, Illustrator Adobe Illustrator came along in 1993, which is a vector program that allows you to stretch forms uh, horizontally or vertically or pop one form in and take one, one out. And um, my work might have gone in a different direction if, if Illustrator hadn't been invented because all of a sudden, like actors on a stage, these cells could be tall and thin or wide and chubby or uh, different scales and uh, that that I think allowed uh, another level of complexity to come into the story. If you think about Europe, um, like you mentioned, Italy has been a kind of powerful place for your work. I spent time in the past with people like Stanley Whitney and um, Marina Adams, and I know they've both uh, spent summers regularly in Italy making work. Oh, and yeah. there are even, yeah, there's even like books of their work, um, you know, made in that specific location. Um, if you think about things that you've done recently, like in Sardinia, um, where you've done that incredible installation that was called Antisteria at the Museo Nivola in Sardinia. That was such a kind of expansive, extraordinary, in every sense of that word, um, installation. Was the location of that quite key to that? And can you speak a bit about that project? Oh, yeah, it really was uh, site-specific. Uh, the Museo Nivola is in the middle of the island, in the middle of nowhere, in a very small town, 
Nibola was a prominent sculptor, I guess in the 50s and 60s. His career was mostly in the U.S., but um, uh, the town or province of Sardinia decided to build a museum for him that included an exhibition space, which was a former 19th century wash house, but configured almost exactly like a church. Mm. And so uh, I'm crazy about Renaissance and Baroque and medieval churches, not only their design, but all the stuff that goes on in the niches with the saints and the relics and the decoration. And so I, I created my own kind of um, church-like installation within the within the building. Yeah, and there was something about that particular project which really resonated with me in terms of how I relate to your paintings when they're like, you know, hanging on a wall. They they are, there is something like almost backlit, and I know they're obviously mm. not, but there's there's just like a sensation, like a visual sensation, mm-hmm. which is funny when you they're think glowing. about computer screens. Yeah, exactly. But when you think about computer screens or like iPhones and then they're kind of windows, even like a computer window system, you know, the kind of, yeah, well, of the early computer that's systems. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but I, and I, I love the windows, though, the kind of st- the reference to stained glass in that particular project. Yes. And those were, uh, you know, digitally produced on clear yeah. plastic. And what I, what I did in that insula- installation and others is once this material goes into the computer, it's, it, it's there as a resource. So those windows were based on drawings I did in 1981. Mm. And then other parts of the installation, I brought in something I'd done in 1997. So it was, it was a kind of coded autobiography as well. Wow. Well, you know, you can just um, take your file and let's say it's a, a horizontal rectangle and pop it into the new space and <laughs> remix <laughs> it, as it were. And also, also reference yourself or like, copy yourself (laughs) that's really cool exactly you know uh, Russell the other thing about doing the same thing for so many years is uh, somebody told me a good joke recently that if if uh, if you do it for five years people think it's really hopeless but if you do it for 30 years then people begin to get interested yeah you you, you actually said 20 if you do something for 20 years people think it's boring if you do it for 30 years it gets interesting again (laughs) which completely you know makes sense but how do you in some ways because of this limited vocabulary i'd like to talk about the process of how you create each image and do you have a a love-hate relationship or a hate-hate relationship with the actual computer do you sketch how do you not end up in some ways repeating motifs or do you give yourself permission to do that what are your rules for yourself within your vocabulary why the image changes is a complete mystery to me. If I'm doing a composition that looks a certain way, I always feel, well, I'll be painting paintings like this forever. But then a couple of months later, I'm drawing it again and some new element comes in or some new sense of balance. And even though the vocabulary is so limited, I honestly think if you look at a painting of mine from last year and one from 10 years ago, they look quite different. And um, uh, it, it's it's unconscious. It's uh, 
it's uh, very much beyond my control. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Wow. Do you sketch each of them? For the most part, I stopped drawing with a pencil in 1993. So I basically compose on the computer. And what I might do is, there's one composition I'm looking at on the computer. I'll take that drawing, and as I was saying, you can stretch it or add an element or take an element away or change the proportions. And that's often how one painting leads to the next. Well, the element of that as well that I've picked up on which reading about you is that these cells also stand in place for humans so you were saying you could stretch them they could become short and fat they could become really thin and slim so they end up having a figurative element within the geometry yeah i i mean the cells were always intended to feel like a block you could put a person inside i've never made well seldom made very small cells because i wanted to have that 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 feeling of human scale so originally the idea is, was you're inside this cell, like you're inside your apartment or, or uh, in a car, uh, inside a sort of self-contained space. And uh, back in the 80s, it occurred to me that, you know, we were living more and more that way, physically isolated from each other, but connected by technology. And so... Uh, they're not literally people, but they're they're uh, they're containers or not exactly dwellings or prisons. I can't that you can imagine a person inside of that. And uh, then there was also uh, a kind of uh, gender element of it right from the start, because I sort of uh, associated a, a square with uh, with stubble. I'm the kind of guy who doesn't shave all the time, stubbly square with like a, a, a male, a kind of a symbol for a male figure. So these uh, prisons and cells and this constricted space was sort of about a kind of critique of the kind of constrained masculinity I sometimes feel. I love that. And so there's a, a claustrophobia that you're, you welcome into the language. Again, very, very perceptive. It's a kind of obsession of mine with claustrophobia. It's, it's an, in, yeah, it's an intensity. It's an uncomfortableness. But it's really interesting to hear you say that you do see both sides of that energy and the fact that it is a critique of how we live. 
but also a celebration and a recognition of your of personally how we live. Right. And I try to stay away from a kind of strong ideological position because, you know, once you decide that something's good or bad, and I mean, we do that in politics, but if we do it in art, then things get sort of stale. They're no longer in play. You know, it's as if you, once, once you decide, like, the digital world is bad, then you're not going to be able to say very much about it. That's true. Do you have assistants in your studio? Yes, I do. Um, one person helps me with all the the digital prints. Uh, you know, I'm not very good at it technically. And, um, and uh, uh, two other people uh, help uh, make the paintings, which are very, very labor-intensive. They're entirely made from uh, clean, uh, straight lines and and rectangular forms with hard edges. And I build up the surfaces. For each uh, form, you have to retape the edges every five coats of paint. So I put on five coats of paint to build up the thickness, but it ends up in the end being about 50 coats of paint. It's uh, at least two or three millimeters thick, uh, raised off the surface, and uh, that's a very time-consuming process. <laughs> there was a time I did it myself, but not so much anymore. So they end up taking on a sculptural element. Well, well, that's when I, that's something I really feel strongly about about painting. This probably isn't so much a concern. For you all, but I grew up uh, in an era where painting was supposed to be dead for several, as a result of several different diseases, depending on what kind of doctor you were, <laughs> either 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 political or technological or any number of reasons. And uh, painting did really start to come alive again around 1980. And, you know, I've... I always ask myself, why do people still like paintings? And my theory is it's both a, an image and a tactile experience at the same time. So you're looking at a picture, even if, even if it's an abstract picture, like you would a photograph, but every photograph has the same texture. And on the other hand, um, I think every interesting painting has a unique tactile identity. I always use the example of Van Gogh. I mean, if you think of Van Gogh in your mind's eye, you think of the wheat field, but you're thinking of all those brush strokes moving across the surface. I think for me, painting is also about sort of taking humanity somewhere to, to, the, to the next place. Or, or something that there's always some sort of sense of the future or trying to push ourselves forwards um you know as humans or something and i think with your work even just like that day glow color what, what, is there a sense of this kind of like future or, or or trying to progress or be better or something i don't know it's like, like the jetsons it's, it's sort of art if the jetsons were buying art that's what they would have <laughs> on their wall <laughs> Like science fiction yeah, painting. Yeah, it is science fiction <laughs> in some ways. 
Uh, well, I, I would say Kenny Scharf is more of the Jetsons, but yes, yeah, I was enough. very interested in <laughs> in in where culture was going and in the rise of digital culture. I wrote a lot about it in the 80s. And then the cartoons have been a big influence on you, especially for the color palette, I guess. But there's something about the cartoon that has worked its way into your practice. Yeah, the idea, well, the idea of a cartoon almost being a uh, simplified form of representation. I think of my, my paintings as diagrams, not abstractions. So, uh, you know, the cartoon is sort of one step removed from a diagram or, or simple Flow cartoon of a face is almost like a diagram yeah. of a human face. Uh, you know, we didn't quite touch on this, but I, I always wonder about this because when I was a young art student, all the artists I admired, like uh, Agnes Martin and uh, Cezanne and Rothko, they were all just plugging away doing the same thing. <laughs> Uh, with very little variation. And I really grew up with that ethos, with the belief that that was uh, a really interesting thing. Apparently, I was, <laughs> for artists at my age, I was pretty much the only one who thought that. And it's interesting for me to think to myself, why me? <laughs> because most of... Uh, the artists of my generation and younger went in a different direction. There's a side to your practice that I really wanted to discuss, and that partly links to that idea of the future, which is printmaking. And I've been blown away by the body of prints that you've made, you know, throughout your career, um, but particularly in the reliefs. So there are these kind of like bas reliefs, which feel really sculptural and really exciting. Can you speak a bit about why printmaking is so important for you as a way of expressing, you know, your ideas in a different dimension or, or method? That's a terrific question. And I'm so appreciative that <laughs> you're interested in my printmaking because sometimes I feel very few people are. <laughs> and yet I, I really have had a big commitment to it and uh, worked in a variety of media typically not, not traditional media like etching and uh, lithography, though, which I think are, in, in today's world, have such limitations. I guess I'd like prints. I collect prints. I'd like things that, you know, are less expensive, more accessible. You both probably know the prints of uh, Patrick Caulfield. Yes. He um, made a million prints along with paintings, and they're all so stunning. And I mean, you can get one for a reasonable amount of money, and I have many in my house. <laughs> mm. And his color palette relates to you in so many ways. Oh, well, that's a big compliment. I think Caulfield was quite a genius, and uh, I'm a big admirer of his work. But the, the other reason I like making prints is I'm really fascinated by how things are made. So if someone comes along with a new process, an expertise in uh, digitally routed carving, like in, in those uh, low relief uh, pieces, or and of course a whole revolution that's taken place in uh, digital printing uh, over the last twenty years is just incredible. I have a printer in my studio with 
I believe it's 11 ink cartridges. So in normal printing, offset printing, you could never get orange. You could, green was sort of iffy. <laughs> but the, the, this printer has specific orange and green cartridges. So the images that come out of this machine are just brilliant, literally. <laughs> uh, and um, it's, it, it's really fun to come into contact with a new printmaker who they always bring their own sensibility to the work. And uh, I like to compare it to the artist has a role of the composer and the um, and the printmaker is the conductor who's going to mm. figure out how this work is going to be played. I love that. Mm. You just said it's that you beautiful. like you like to know how things work. And it, it makes me want to ask you if you're a good electrician and can you change a plug? Because these <laughs> these are like you've been mining circuit boards for the last like 30 years. Are you someone that used to take apart like the back of the TV or the remote control or the calculator to see what the inner workings were? I think I used to take them apart, but couldn't put them back together. Yeah, I've done that <laughs> many, sort of many times. To, then slightly panicked, like, oh, I'm really hot and sweaty. Like, oh, my God, I've just completely broken this. I have sort of, sort of a short attention span, so I'm kind of like a, uh, a person who generates an idea and then really counts on others to... Tidy up. <laughs> Put it back together. Yeah. That's very well said or or to follow through. Let's put it that way. Who else do you collect then when it comes to your print collection? You said Patrick Caulfield. Uh I have two amazing prints by um Frank Stella. Uh they were published actually by Waddington in London from the Moby Dick series, which I think technically are about the most stunning prints of the twentieth century anyway. The, each one has features lithography, silkscreen, etching, collage elements. They're just they're just unbelievable technical tour de force. Uh, uh, the other thing, besides collecting, I I noticed Russell that uh, you uh, also. Wikipedia it said that you own a painting by Doran uh, Lingberg, who was a student of mine at Yale. <gasps> and so um, I have some pieces by my former students, but uh, that's a big part of my life to see. Over 10 years, I had about 200 students and to see all these incredibly talented people go through the art world and become and develop such a, such rich bodies of work has been just amazing. Yeah, that must give Actually, you ultimate um, pride, yeah. <laughs> I published a print with um, Duron last year, and Russell curated a show at our gallery in Margate and had a giant painting of his in our show. We loved I, I, I loved working with him. He's such an interesting guy. Yeah, he's fascinating. Um, you know, yeah. in, the, in the prints that you've made, um, how important is the handmade kind of I noticed that there's certain references to like handmade paper and there's also that series of prints you made where they're almost like cut by hand like the actual materials you've used I really liked that kind of emphasis somehow on the handmade because sometimes if you look at a painting you don't always really like consciously think about the handmade do you know what I mean yes I'm trying to think which print you mean oh you mean the actual handmade paper yes 
I, I mean, it's just the sensuality of that handmade paper. It's, mm. it's uh, if it has a deckled edge or a very specific surface to it, it's very luxurious. Mm. Mm. I think it was the block works I was referencing. And it is very much that, that surface is what I was interested in. Oh, the way I that the light it, hits the paper. Yeah, yes. that was a lot of fun. Yeah, they're, they're extraordinary. Thank you. What yeah. I asked them to do was they make their own paper. I asked them to make a kind of lasagna of different colored papers. <laughs> so it was like blue, yellow, red, green, and one on top of the other. And then to chop them up so you would see the... Uh, through the side, you would see the different layers of color, like geological layers, and mm. it worked out very well. How many works do you have at one time that you're working on? Well, things are in different level of development. I mean, I, I'm working on drawing. There are a couple of paintings in my studio, and then uh, eight paintings just left for London. I'm having a show at uh, Modern Art on the 29th. Of September? Great. London must have a big influence on you in some ways because you've been back and forth there for a few years now showing. Does London feel like it has the same sort of energy, although we don't have the grid like New York, but for you, does it give you any inspiration for work? I, I love London. And um, I think people talk more about art in London than they do in New York, uh, at least the people I meet. New York is always so much about it you know, what gallery is somebody in whose work is selling or Gagosian or Sferner or all this. All the York has really become a place where the dialogue is only about the sort of financial gossip. And, mm. um, of course, I haven't been to London in three or four years since the pandemic, but I really have a good time talking to people there in the art world. And as a city, I, uh, London being center of a former, you know, global empire, you meet people from a lot of different places. And I find that interesting, too. Absolutely. Do you still have um, burning ambitions when it comes to your practice and where you want work to be shown or places that you would love to visit or have, you know, opportunities to be shown in? Yeah, honestly, um, especially in the U.S., I'm sort of outside the, um, my work is sort of outside of the critical dialogue. And having a big museum show in New York would be um, something I hope I get to do while I'm still around. Absolutely. Mm. Well, let's, let's make it happen, everyone listening. Come on. When, That's when, right. you were, um, when you were growing up, if you go all the way back to your childhood, was art always something that, that sort of spoke to you from a really young age because I and I heard that w when you went to university like you very specifically wanted to go to Yale because you knew that it had a great art program so it all seems like and someone even described you as precocious when you were a kid um so was was, was art something that was there from the beginning like not until I was a teenager I liked ah. making things and building things but I I really had very little exposure to it. And um, my family wasn't at all oriented towards the visual arts. But um, so it was sort of a surprise <laughs> that I wanted to be an artist. If I'd wanted to be a poet or an actor or a lawyer, that 
I, I think they would have expected that more. So. Oh wow! So was was it was it a bit of a rebellion then, to be an artist? Did you have to fight for it? Well, I was very determined, so there wasn't much of a fight. And <laughs> I have one maternal grandmother who I think was visually very gifted. So I think it came from, from, from that line. What I love about your work, Peter, is it has this nostalgia, like it makes me think of playing video games as a kid, but yet it always, it always has this forward thinking contemporary. It's not the now it's, it's what's coming in the kind of ominous, there's an ominous energy as well in some ways of, of, I guess that is the prison bars. I guess that is the claustrophobia. The, if, if the more we fall into the trappings of technology, the more rigid and, uh, stuck, we become well i'm very complimented that you can still see them that way they feel that way for me but since i started doing it a long time ago the fact that they could still have that resonance for you is 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 a big compliment for me i think i get it though because if you make paintings like mine there's there still is an aspect of alienation you know, they're not warm and fuzzy and humanistic. They're kind of tough. And uh, when you speak about the future being somewhat ominous or not exactly heartless, but uh, having a kind of autonomous power, may- maybe that that's uh, those are the terms you're picking up. Do you see art as a comfort or as a friend or some kind of like, I don't know how to describe it, like a, yeah, like a, I don't know, like a comforting aspect to making work? Not so much. <laughs> I've always divided artists into educators and entertainers. So I think I'm more the educator. And, I, I, you know, I really like art that's involved in ideas. I was very much a product of the, uh, of the era of conceptual art, of art that proposed different ideas about what art could be or what the content of art could be or uh, what the physical form of art could be. So as an educator, and you talked about teaching Duran at Yale, teaching has been a, a big part of your life. And have you found that that's also helped you work out ideas for yourself through the teaching of others? Uh, not really. <laughs> I, I, I love going to artist studios and looking at work with them. And if it's a mature artist, just talking it over with them. But if, if it's somebody who's still in graduate school, it's sort of like, um, this sounds like a rather old-fashioned masculinist uh, uh, analogy, but imagine we bring the car into the garage and there's, you're looking under the hood and saying, well, maybe needs a new carburetor or whatever they have in cars these days. And so the car is already there. It's working pretty well, but you're trying to figure out how to make it better. Working with uh, grad students at that level is sort of like that. And also, again, lifting up the boot, the bonnet of the car and looking at all the pipes and the tubes and the boxes and the fuse box and whatever, again, relates to your work. So to use that as an analogy also really works into you. You know, the funny thing is halfway through Yale, Unfortunately, when you looked under the hood, there wasn't anything to look at. 
because everybody was making studies on their computer. And so in the old days, there'd be drawings on the wall. <laughs> and you'd have to beg people to, you know, open their computer and get a look at how they were working these things out. And then it was the opposite. That's true. But thankfully, it's all coming back. So we would like to ask you some questions which you always ask everyone who comes and talk on. The first one is, if there was an art heist and you could have any work of art in the world for yourself, for your own collection to live with, what would it be and why? Oh, that uh, that's relatively easy for me. Um, Titian. <laughs> I guess the Titian Bacchanal. Mm. Where... That's the imp one, isn't it? The kind of like like Mr. Tumnus one. Is it that one? Oh, yeah. oh yes. Uh, they're all they're drinking wine on the ground, and yeah. I think it's uh, Bacchus flying through the air, and he's just such a great painter. Fine, we can get that for you. <laughs> Where did you first um, sort of become interested in Titian? I think when I went to Venice. At, at the end of my teenage years, um, I went to Venice for the first time, and that sort of re- reawakened my interest in Western painting mm-hmm. and maybe start thinking about using paint on canvas again. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though my paintings don't have that kind of um, human sensuality, the sensuality and seductiveness of Venetian painting has always been a big thing for me. Yeah, because that's interesting. I actually wanted to ask you that because there's this sensuality and sensuousness in that kind of work and in painting, like even romanticism or kind of romantic energy. Do you think that conceptual art can have heart or feeling? Because weirdly with your work, there is a resonance for me because I'm a very like soul person. I, I like Frida Kahlo, do you know what I mean? Like I grew up with kind of like stories within art, you know, and self-portraits and stuff. But I am struck by your work and I do find it to have a soulfulness and even just the way that colours resonate. And if you think of someone like Stanley as well, like Stanley Whitney, like his paintings, you know, he follows the grid every time and there, there is this resonance between the colours. So for me, it's not like... It's not conceptual art that's kind of like cold-hearted or like totally rigorous in a kind of in a, in quite a structural way. Like that, there is a heart to it for me. It's interesting you, you just said that, Rob, like that or not. It's interesting you just said Rob, about the Frida Kahlo because it suddenly made me think of the two Fridas being joined conduit <laughs> in between conduit. the red line, the red line, the Spinoza, yeah. Spinoza's red line, yeah. or whatever invisible line. Yeah. Well, strictly speaking, what I do is not conceptual art. Okay. Yeah. Conceptual true. art is supposed to yeah, yeah, yeah. really not not be an object or divorced from materiality, but I, I mean, there's nothing wrong with. Um, I don't think there's a strong dividing line between ideas and feelings, and you know, every painting has a point of view, has an ideology. It, it's uh, just thinking of someone like Duran. He. There, there is definitely a point of view on humanity in his work that you could almost say that that's its conceptual structure of his art. Do you ever make work for yourself that nobody sees that is completely different to what you put out in the world? <laughs> Would you have time to do that? <laughs> Basically, no. Uh, I really do make art to communicate. And uh, 
there's a lot of things that people don't see because I'm just fooling around with them. But and I I also don't keep my own paintings. People give me a hard time about that. But I mean, to speak to you as an actor, I, I want people to see the paintings. I want people to be them to be out there in the world, like like as if you're like a theater piece or an opera, not 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 stuck in my closet. So mm. I want them to. I want them to go out onto the stage. Um, the other question we ask every guest is, what is your favorite color? Oh, my. <laughs> you know, in my case, um, you'd expect a little bit of a complex answer. I always identify with red and the idea of heat and fire. But in my installations, I tend to use a lot of yellow and identify yellow with its light and with sunlight. So I love that question. <laughs> That's great. What is the best advice you've ever received when it comes to your own practice? Long pause. I really can't recall anybody giving me advice. It's more... When if people respond to something, or if somebody comes into the studio and talks about the work, like you you both are doing, it's more like about learning from what people say. And you know, there's several things that you both have said today that give me a fresh perspective on what I'm doing. So in a sense listening to you, I'm getting advice. That's, that's the way I process that. So in some ways you're saying the best advice you've received is from listening to talk up <laughs> <laughs> for all of our listeners. So no, uh, Russell, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So as, listening. A, as an educator though, let's, let's just flip it then. So what advice do you give emerging artists who are saying help? What do I do? Oh, it's so, uh, it, it's so interesting because it's almost like going into a trance state and trying to envision where they want to be in a year or where they want that vision to go and leaving your own ego at the door and trying to get into their mind and anticipate what that next step might be. To manifestation yes it, it, it's one of the most intense experiences i've ever had and uh, i remember after september 11th and everybody in the states was devastated the only time i wasn't feeling tragically devastated was when i was doing studio visits mm. because it the amount of focus it took and the place it took me just completely blocked everything else out I think art can do that. I feel the same. Rob feels the same when we have a down day. Yeah. Going to an art gallery, talk to an artist, go to an artist studio, it completely... It or even just recording the podcast. Exactly. Even today, like I've been incredibly stressed today yeah. and then it's like this huge relief. And it gets me thinking, you know, when you said your favourite colour was maybe yellow, you did that installation in Frankfurt, the Schirn Kunsthalle. Oh, I'm so complimented. And, and the way that the light, you know, you thought about light in that installation, that that, that kind of... The, the the yellow that kind of effervescent yellow 
Yeah, that's I, the kind of thing I, that I can transport you somewhere else. That. Did you? Yes. You know, it's a rotunda for people who haven't been there with a big glass roof on top of it. Yes. And yeah. they had offered me the summer months. And I said to myself, what the hell am I going to do? The dominant element of this space is the sun. So mm -hmm. what I decided to do is put yellow film over the dome to filter the light yellow and then to put mirrored yellow prints on this circular uh, interior walls and yellow paint on the floor. And the mm -hmm. result was the light turned yellow. And if you mm -hmm. looked in the space from outside, you'd see this glowing yellow swimming pool. And if you were inside the space, the, the, the world outside looked was not yellow. It was really, really exciting. Yeah, it was like a, almost like a color bath, wasn't it? It's like complete saturation around yeah. every single atom in the air or whatever, molecule. And, <laughs> and we worked so hard on it in my studio. We were making scale models and really? doing all yeah. kinds of things. It really looked like a mad scientist at that point. Yeah. Well, luckily for everyone listening, your website, peterhalley.com, is the most incredible, I guess, as you'd expect for someone so kind of rigorous, but an incredible archive of all the different works you've made, different decades, um, but predominantly also the prints that I mentioned earlier are all there and the, these installations. So do have a look because Peter Halley, your legacy is so much more than just a canvas on a wall. It's very much like an expansive practice that's gone out into the world Thank and you. I really continues to that. grow. And when you work all over the world, nobody sees everything. So... True. Nice to gather together. Well, good luck for the Modern Art Show in London. For everyone listening, you can follow, I think it's at Stuart Shave Modern Art, but if you check it out on Instagram, you'll find that. For everything we talked about today, please follow at TalkArt on Instagram, and we'll be posting images uh, of all the artworks and the themes we've been bringing up in today's interview. And, uh, and Peter, are you on Instagram? Uh, Peter Halley Studio at Peter Halley Studio. Perfect. So we'll also be linking to you there. And like I said, go to peterhalley.com for an extensive um, research This has experience. been so much fun. I can't <laughs> thank you both enough. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for your contribution to culture and art and oh to thinking, because I also feel that your writing is so important and even the history of Index. And for those who've never seen Index, it was this incredible kind of fanzine kind of came out of like an indie spirit. And there is a kind of retrospective of it in print form through Rizzoli, which was published, I think, back in 2014. And I really recommend buying that as a monograph. It's kind of a overview and different chapters of all those conversations because if you like talk art i'm sure you would love what index did thank you so thank you so much thank peter you, and thank, thank you for you listening Robert. everyone Take care. <laughs> we'll be back very soon bye. thanks Wonderful. for listening bye bye, -bye. <laughs> you've been listening to talk art with robert diamond and russell toby follow us on instagram at talk art where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to TalkArt at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. 
From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com